A few years after I became a pastor, I ran into someone that I used to hang around with uh, before Ginny and I were dating. And uh, the conversations for guys often very quickly turns to, you know, so what are you doing now? I told him I was a pastor, and he laughed a little bit, and he said, no, what are you really doing? And I handed him you know, a business card and said, I'm the pastor you know, here at this church, and he kind of chuckled again. He said, where'd you get these printed? Um, he was just having a real hard time grasping the reality that I was a pastor. He knew me before... I came to Christ, and uh, he knew that my life, my life did not reflect God in any way. Uh, and that's what he was used to. That's how he knew me. So when I told him I was a pastor, he was uh, just really having a hard time wrapping his mind around it. Now, it's not that I was that bad, but it was the fact that my life very clearly did not reflect God. Uh, you know, the, um, you know, my values and, and my behavior. Now, um, again, I, I wasn't that bad because remember, that's what, you know, Jenny started dating me before I was a Christian and actually agreed to marry me, um, you know, and uh, I think you think enough of her to realize that, well, um, maybe I really wasn't um, that bad. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be settling for... Um, being not that bad, but let me encourage you, let me implore you, don't settle for not that bad. Don't do that. Don't settle for being that way. We just celebrated communion. Now, let me, let me tell you very clearly Christ did not die on the cross so that you could settle for not that bad. That isn't the reason he went to the cross. So that you could just settle for being not that bad. Let's pray. We're going to get into our passage for today. Father, thank you for that, that new start that you have made available to us. That new life. Being born again, and we use those phrases, but here we stand. We look just like we did before we came to you. We, in many ways, act just like we did before we came to you. Uh, teach us from your word what it means to be yours, what it means to have this relationship with you, to be forgiven, to have a new start, to have new life. Thank you for your word and, and your truth. I do thank you for those who have gone before me and shown me what it means to live for you. And I thank you for your word that has clarified that and has helped me see in their life your word and your truth. So now guide us that our life might more reflect who you are as well. And that in every area of our life, we would never settle for just not that bad. Teach us, enliven us, and guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, page 1085, if you're using the Pew Bible. This is a continuation 
of what we began to look at last week as Paul takes a, a turn to some practical application. Uh, the first couple chapters are, are very uh, heavy doctrinally. Uh, and again, doctrine is not a bad thing, and it's it's you know just the way you think of God. I mean, that's the, that that is your doctrine, the way that you're thinking of God. And he, Paul, wants them to think, wants us to think. God wants us to think properly. You have those first couple chapters. He gets into chapter three, and he begins the practical application of what it looks like. Now we looked at the first four verses last week. Drop down to verse five uh, today. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge <clears throat> according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Now you notice verse, verse 5 begins again with therefore. You know, think about last week. <clears throat> Look at verse 2. He tells us there to set our mind, make that decision, uh, you know, th- that determination decide you're going to follow God. We talked about keep looking up, that you're going to follow God, so keep looking at him. He says, now take action on that determination. You set your mind, therefore, he says, he goes on, notice what he says, put to death. Put to death is an intentional action to separate yourself. This is not something that happens by accident. It's an intentional action to separate yourself from everything that belongs to your worldly nature. Everything that belongs to your worldly nature, not settling for just good enough or just or just not that bad, not settling for not that bad in any area. But in everything that belongs to your worldly nature, you are going to you you are going to intentionally make intentional actions to separate yourself uh, from that. When it talks about worldly nature here again, remember. The overwhelming majority of times when it talks about the world in Scripture, it's talking about that which is separated from and opposed to God, that which rejects God. That's what he's talking about. You know, so you separate yourself from everything you know, that, 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 is, that you find that is, you know, that, that is separated and opposed to God. That will destroy you. Separate your things from those things which would destroy you. Separate yourselves from those things that lead you away from God or lessen your passion for God. You see, they don't always have to directly and and diametrically lead you away from God. If all it does is lessen your passion for God, you see, then it's beginning to weaken you. It's beginning to destroy you. Have you ever seen anything that's dry rotted or uh, any wood? And, you know, you have anything in your house, you know, any old boards or something like that, and they're just kind of crumbling and falling apart. And that happens, you know, because quite often it, there's just a little leak, just a little moisture problem. That's not taken care of. And sometimes, you know, that moisture gets a little wet and then it kind of dries out. And, 
Oh, okay, it's fine. It's dry. It gets a little wet and then it dries out. Oh, that's kind of fine. You know, it gets a little wet and it dries. Oh, that's kind of fine. Before you know it, it's not so fine. It's not so fine. Don't settle. Don't settle for, you know, getting rid of part of it. He says to get rid of all of those things, all of those things, everything that belongs to your worldly nature, everything that will that will that leads you away from God or anything that lessens your passion for God. Separate yourselves from those. You know, then there's a short but a broad list, not an exhaustive list, because more things appear in verse eight. You know, but the things uh, related that you see here in verse, you know, that, that come up in verse five, a lot of them r- relate around around well, sex. Really, I mean, he starts out with sexual immorality. Now that includes, you know, that includes all sorts of things. You know, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, incest, uh, any 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 sex outside of the marriage relationship. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about uh, about sexual immorality. Now, I think this also includes pornography, which is simply just another form of sexual gratification outside of the marriage relationship that's all pornography is there and we trivialize sex we we look at it as, as simply you know a physical act but god intends it to be an expression of love and intimacy between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship something that draws them closer together now the main problem here as he's talking about here is this is what the person is driven by they're driven by their sexual desires with no regard for what god says that there is no regard for what God says. That's where it becomes immoral. The immorality. You know, and then he goes on, he says, impurity, a physical, moral, spiritual uncleanness. I found it interesting, though, this word is also used uh, of a squandering, of a self-indulgent lifestyle. I, I just kind of found that interesting that that's some of the ways that that's used in Scripture there. Uh, when it talks about lust, some translations have passion. Specifically, it would be sinful passions because passion itself can be good. You can, you can be passionate for God. You can be passionate for your mate. You know, so that can be good. Here, it's a misdirected passion. You know, it, it's one that's misused, misapplied, inappropriately. Uh, it, it's applied inappropriately in an intense way, again, that draws you away from God. Here's the problem was when it draws you away from God and his word. He says evil desires, that's a craving or a longing for what is forbidden, what God tells us is forbidden. And then there's this one that gets thrown in every once in a while and greed. And what do we think? Well, that's not so bad. Don't settle for thinking, well, it's not that bad. It is greed. That's a self-centered desire to have more, a self-centered desire to hoard more. Now, Jesus addresses this with the farmer who became so successful, so successful, he wondered to do it, what to do with all he had. And he said, well, what, what I'm going to do, I, got, well, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my perfectly good barns and I'll build new barns that'll hold more stuff. And then I'm going to I'm going to be doing well so I can sit back. I can I can, you know, just indulge myself. I can take life easy, you know, eat, drink and be merry. Now, Jesus describes the conclusion this way. He says, but God said to him. You fool. I don't ever want to be in a position where God calls me a fool. To be in that position where the creator of the universe, the one who loves me and and gave his life for me, I don't ever want to be in a position, I don't ever want to be doing something where he says to me, you fool. 
And he goes on, he says, this very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus says that is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, greed takes our eyes off of God. It takes our eyes and our passion away from him just as, just as effectively as those other sins listed there. But it often does it more subtly. You know, it often does it more subtly and it comes in there. Now... Understand, we can all be tempted in any of these areas. And you say, oh, no, not me. No, no, look at them. You know, you might be strong in some, but we can all be tempted in any of these areas. That's why we're told to put them to death. He tells us to put them to death because he knows we we can be tempted there. You know, you choose to indulge in them or you choose to put them to death. Work to remove these practices. Work to remove even the temptation of these from your life. <clears throat> you know, don't, don't feed them in any way. Don't feed them in any way. Don't think, you know, just a little bit, it's okay. Don't excuse them at all. You know, don't lessen the severity of their destructive power in your life. Do not settle for believing that they are just not that bad. Don't settle for that. Put them to death because they're opposed to God and they will destroy you if you continue to indulge in them. If you continue to indulge in them, they will destroy you. And that's why God tells us to put to death whatever belongs to your worldly nature. You know, whatever it is that's there, put it to death so you can live in Christ. Don't... Don't simply cut back on these areas. Kill them. Put it to death. Remove it. Don't just lessen it. Remove it from your life because it's going to destroy you if you don't. All sin has consequences. This is what he begins to talk about in verse 6. Because of these, he says, because of these sins, because, because you don't put these things to death, because you settle, he says, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Now, the disobedient, it means those who show, regularly show, by their consistently sinful lifestyle, that they have no relationship with God. Their consistent lifestyle shows they have no relationship with God. Just like my life did before I came to Christ. And my friend couldn't believe that I was now a pastor. Why? Because my life consistently showed I didn't have a relationship with God. Disobedient. God's not going to put up with sin forever. You know, those bumper stickers that, you know, I'm going to be too busy in hell greeting all my friends. Uh, Sorry, that is is not how it's going to be at all. Uh, you know, God's not going to put up with sin forever. He is going to return, and he is returning to bring sin to an end. And those who are left in sin because they chose not to come to Christ for forgiveness, they were left in sin because they made the choice not to come to Christ for forgiveness. You know, they will suffer the consequences of their choices. John chapter 16. He says, nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, notice, because they do not believe in me. The disobedient 
are those who do not believe in Christ. Those who have rejected Christ. Well, sin because they do not. Sin is choosing to reject God. That's what sin is. It's choosing to reject God. It is not believing God to some degree. That to some degree we, we, we choose not to believe in God and we put in our own standards or values. We put in our own choices and we choose not to believe in him. First Timothy chapter 5. He says, some people's sin are obvious going before them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. You think we're getting away with something? We're not. They, they, they surface later. Hebrews chapter 10. For if we deliberately sin... If we make that choice, I didn't do it on purpose. Yes, you did. You made a choice. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but suck it up and, 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 and you know, stand in the truth. You make a deliberate choice. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer. There is no longer. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. You see, because if you reject, if you reject the sacrifice of Christ, if you reject God, if you reject that sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sin, there is no other payment for sin. If you reject what he has done on the cross for your sin, there is no other payment. You can never be good enough. You can never behave well enough. You can never make it on your own. If you reject what Christ has done for you. Second Peter chapter 2. He says, For if God uh, didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, uh, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, Distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for he lived among them. That righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh. Those worldly desires, those desires that are against God, those desires that leave God out, those desires that reject God and despise authority. I remember talking with, well, more than one person, but someone specifically came to mind. And they said, no one's going to tell me what to do. Ooh. Man, I understand the feeling. They follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. The standard of right and wrong is set by God. It's not set by us. It's not set by our society, which continually twists it into something else. You know, the means of forgiveness is given by God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We just we just celebrated that. You know, it, it, it's not by us doing good enough. It's not by by our good outweighing the bad. That's not what it is. It's by God and by by 
he is the one who sets the standard. You see, the problem is, is not that God judges sin. The problem is that we take sin too lightly. Now, some people say, well, how could God do that? We take sin too lightly. We don't understand the, we don't understand the destructiveness of sin, not only in our, our lives, but uh, what we see there in the lives of others. That's why we need a life-changing relationship with Christ Jesus. That's why we need a life-saving, a life-changing relationship with him. That's what he begins to talk about in verse 7. And you once walked in these things when you were living with them. Our relationship to Christ brings changes into our, life, into our living. Not just into our thinking but into our living. Our relationship with Christ brings changes into our living, into the way we live our life. Our relationship with Christ, you know, it brings forgiveness as he removes our sin, and it brings new life in order for us to help us live for him. You once walked in these things. You once did. You used to do these things, he's saying. You know, what we once were is changed when we choose to live, when we choose to live in a relationship with Christ instead of walking in the ways described in verses 5 and, and verses 8. Don't settle for good enough. Verse 8, he goes on with more of them. He says, but now you must also put away, you, you might say, well, we didn't have any trouble with those, with those upper things, with the sexual thing. I, I got that all under control. Uh, you know, but verse 8, now you must also put away all the following. How much of the following? Well, he says, all the following, don't settle for good enough, all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Again, not an exhaustive list, but, you know, areas that we must put away, you know, from our arsenal of responses. You know, put these things away, get them out of your life. Anger, now, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory, um, and no, um, your anger is not most often righteous anger. It's most often self-centered anger. But this word here that's translated anger, it speaks of a natural impulse or desire. It's a more settled and abiding condition of the mind. It's more of a natural disposition, you know, that someone is naturally angry. I think we all know some angry people. I know for a while I was an angry person. I don't want to be there. He goes on, those, those ones translated wrath or rage in some of the translations, that's, uh, that's that hot anger, that passion, you know, it, it's fierce. It's more of an agitated position here. It's applied in a bad way, a destructive way. It's a vengeful drive of what's going on. We rage because someone did not meet our expectations. We rage because somebody did not behave in the way we thought they should. Whether it's the way they drive, whether it's the way they walk, whether it's the way they, you know, the choices that they've made. They didn't do something that we expected. And so what happens, you know, is we think they've done something they shouldn't have done. And so this flares up quickly. You know, it comes there, comes raging to the front. Now, you can try to differentiate it from anger, but both are destructive. Don't waste your time trying to differentiate them. Get them both out of your life. They're both destructive to our soul, and we're told to rid ourselves of them both. Don't settle for just not that bad. Get these out of your life, he says. 
and malice. That's a wickedness, a depravity that's not afraid to break the law, particularly God's law. You know, just not afraid to do it. Slander, blasphemy. That's speech that, may, that, that is intended to injure another's reputation. It's speech, that is, it's speech that comes out of my mouth that intends for the hearer to think less of the person I'm talking about. Whether it's a politician that really ticks you off or whether it's your neighbor who lets their dog poop in your yard. Whichever, that what you say, that what comes out of your mouth causes the hearer to think less of them, less of who you're talking about. He says to do what? To get these out of your life. To get this out of your life. Slander, that blasphemy. And then he goes on, he says, filthy language, obscene talk is how some of our translated uh, dirty language. That's abuse of filthy, vulgar. Some of that's set by society, yes, it is. You know, because, you know, I, I still don't know, the, and I, I, I don't want to know, so if you know it, and if this offends you, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, people in England talk about this bloody thing, and that, that really doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It means something to them, you know, and you say it to them, and, you know, in good company, and they're horrified. Whoa! You know, um, I, I, so some of it is, you know, some vulgar language sometimes is, but it's also that language, the way in which you talk to a member of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. You don't have to be married to violate this one. You can be single. The way you talk to a member of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. Why? Because... What is vulgar and obscene is set by God. <coughs> and he is the one. The list really goes on in the verse 9 where he says, do not lie to one another. This includes not only flat out telling an, an untruth, but also telling part of the truth in such a way that it causes the other person to be deceived. You know, and you know, he says to put away, put off. Those practices. Why? Because they're contrary to Christ. You put them off because they are contrary to Christ Jesus. And we lie to one another when we say we have a relationship with Christ and we continue to, to live. We continue to choose and live like the world that rejects Christ. And he tells us, you know, we refuse to do what he tells us to put off the old self with its practices. And we refuse to do that. He says, put off these old self with its practices, the old self, that old nature, that predisposition to leave God out of your life. That predisposition to leave God out of your decisions, that, that, that way in which we were to that where we left God out of our actions. And he says to, to that old self, you have to put those off, put off that predisposition, put off all of those acts that come that, that, that come from that way of thinking. Put off everything that comes from that way of forming decisions. Get these out of your life. Now, it's good to put off the old practices, but we need to go further than that because that's just incomplete. And he tells us in verse 10, he says, we must also put on the new self. 
that new nature, that new disposition that's received when we come into a relationship with Christ, you know, so that we can serve God in righteousness. Let that guide your decisions, he says. Let that guide your actions. The new self is marked by our, what he says there, being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our creator, according to what we learn about the image of God. He says that you're, and I like the way this is worded, you're being renewed, continually renewed. It's a process of being renewed, something that is ongoing, something that is growing, but it's an intentional growth that you're being renewed. You're not sitting there waiting for God to change you. You are, you are acting and living on what God has shown you, which is part of the way that he wants to change you. It's something that we are, that, that we are continually putting effort and time into. And we need, we need this being renewed. We need to continually, we need this continual renewal because we still battle our sin nature. And sometimes we lose that battle. And we need to continually be being renewed. Because we live in a world that wants to beat us down. Again, remember, when we're talking about the world here, we're talking about that which rejects God. That which, which pushes God aside. That which does not let God control it. That which just has no influence on God and wants to reject God. And we live in a world that continually, that continually beats us with that. And continually tells us, you know, what, what their standards are. Which fly right in the face of God's standards. And we need to continually, we need to, that, that whole thing of being renewed in knowledge and in living. We're going to look more at that next week as we get into verses, you know, 12 to 17. But let's finish up today with verse 11. He says, in Christ... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now we read those things. These are these were normal divisions, and here's the here's the rub for them. They were normal and somewhat accepted divisions in their society. Jew and Greek. When they say Greek, they're talking about those, you know, those that they would reject. Why? Because they weren't Jews. Because they weren't the people of God. Circumcision and uncircumcision. Those who had that 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 the, the physical symbol of, of being God's person. Barbarian. You know, those again who who reject God. Scythian. You know, they were saying this really kind of the bottom of the bucket. Slave and free. He said, you know, they. We can and we should have harmony in Christ, not division. You know, there should be harmony in Christ. Don't settle for not that bad. We should have that harmony. We should not have division. Some people focus on more. Some people focus more on what divides us as Christians rather than being united in our relationship with Christ. And there are some ministries that focus more on telling us how bad the other Christians are 
rather than focusing on being united in Christ. Now, Paul had to correct the Corinthians about this over and over again. First Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same understanding, in the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there's a rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? He brings it up again in chapter 3. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly living like unbelievers? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual people? Again, in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And the praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. For who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? In fact, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? And in chapter 11, which comes just before he shares with them about remembering coming together for the Lord's Supper, he says, now in giving this next instruction, I do not have praise for you. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. He had to confront Peter, and he records that in Galatians chapter 2 as he's writing to the Galatians. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing a circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the deal. We may be different, but we don't have to be divided. In fact, he intends us to be different. Differences are good. Division is not. Differences are good. Division is not. God intends for us to be connected with others who are different, but still have that relationship with him. That's part of the intentional giftedness of the body. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit, with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope in your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Then he goes on and he talks about the different gifts that are given to each as a part of the body. And that, that all of those parts come together and make those body. And we all have a relationship in Jesus. Then talking about, uh, after talking about those gifts, he says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way to him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Same instructions he gave to the Romans. He said, further by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he should think. Instead, think sensibly. As God has distributed that measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And also then he, you know, he gives instructions then to the Corinthians to help them do away with their divisions. And, and, and as they come together in Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now, there are different gifts but the same Spirit, different ministries but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person that produces what is beneficial. And then he lists some of the gifts. He lists the, the gift. I don't think any of these lists of gifts in, in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, or 1 Corinthians 12, I don't think any of those are an exhaustive list. I think they're more areas of giftedness. Teaching is a gift, for example. And there's many different ways to teach. But he goes on, he lists some of those gifts. And then he says, but one in the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills, as God wills, not as the person wills. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Different, but not divided. You know, harmony, not division. Don't settle for not that bad. Don't settle for that. Follow Christ in everything, in everything at all times. Put to death, put to death and, and put away everything in your old self that settled for not that bad. Get those out of your life. Put on the new self, constantly being renewed in Christ. Don't settle for not that bad. Father, thank you. That you have given us your word and truth to guide us and to teach us that we might know more what it means to be yours. That when we see this, it's not to discourage us. It's to help us to be yours. That you are not trying to defeat us and beat us down, but you are trying to lift us up to make us aware of your word and your truth. To make us aware of your holiness and your being. To make us aware that you have gifted us, that you have empowered us, that it is by your grace that we stand. To make us realize, Father, that it is not in our strength alone, but it's as we yield to you that we are more able to follow you, that we are more able to live for you. It's as we put off these things, as we put to death these things that are destroying us, and Father, that as we do those things, we are better able to live for you. We are more able to shine for you and reflect your glory. We are more able to stand and know that we have that relationship with Christ. We are able to live in that peace that comes of knowing that we are yours and you are ours. We thank you, Father. Help us never to settle for not that bad, but to live for you 
in everything, at all times, in every place. Remind us, empower us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.